Lord, this is the posture of our hearts. Lord, all life is in your hands. So we give ourselves to you. And the good and the bad, when we don't understand what's happening, we don't understand what you're up to, we simply say that our lives are yours. So I pray that you bless your people today. In Jesus' name, amen. Before our speaker comes up, I just want to say good morning to you. Um, and for those who are watching online, I want to welcome you once again. And just wanted to mention something briefly. Some of you may have been watching the news about what's happening in Turkey uh, and the earthquake. And so I just want to name that um, as we, we, we see things like this, we hear this, and there's just a massive loss of life. And it's still counting. So we call on the Lord. And we just pray for the people who are suffering. We pray for God's mercy, God's hand in an unimaginable situation. So let's be prayerful about that church. That in seasons like this, when we don't understand what's happening, and this is why we have to put our hands in the Lord, because we don't see tomorrow. We don't know what's coming tomorrow. So that's why we've got to trust the Lord, and we pray that God's healing will be in Turkey. So let's be prayerful about that church. Kimmy mentioned uh, Pastor Michelle Dodson, and she mentioned rightly that even though she is a guest speaker, she's not new. Very much a founding member of this church, so I'm sure she would still call this home. So I want you all to give her a warm welcome. Will you welcome Pastor Michelle Dodson? Good morning. Okay, I'm, uh -huh, I'm, I'm attributed to the fact that I still have my mask on. Y'all didn't hear me. That's all right. <laughs> good morning. It is so good to be with you all this morning. Um, I do bring you greetings from Bronzeville. Um, yes. <laughs> uh, I have to say, it's been really... Um, really special and really precious the way our two churches um, have sort of reconnected over this last year, two years, I don't know time anymore, y'all know. Um, so it, it, it feels good and it feels really right uh, to be here with you all. There, there are times when I have come to preach uh, as a guest preacher and I felt like I was walking into a place I was like, I, oh, I do feel like a guest preacher. Um, <laughs> And I don't feel like that this morning, so I, I thank God for that. <laughs> so as has been mentioned, uh, we're going to continue this morning in the sermon series that you all um, have already begun. I think you began it last week, is that, is that right? Um, waiting for God. And uh, I have to tell you that this topic is a really interesting topic to me because it seems to defy the adage, practice makes perfect. Like, we wait a lot, and yet we seem to always struggle <laughs> with waiting. As a people of God, we should be always waiting. I mean, if you, if you think about our faith, one of the tenets of our faith is that we are a people who believe that the God we serve is going to return 
and make all things right. So our posture, like always, is waiting. We have lots of practice waiting. And yes, on a, on a massive scale, we are waiting for God to return. But in the day-to-day, -day, we are always waiting. We're waiting for a promise that God gave us to come to fruition. We're waiting for instructions that God gave us to, to move forward. We're waiting. We're constantly waiting. And yet, and yet, we constantly find ourselves wrestling, struggling, trying to figure out how to sit in that space. Practice does not seem to make perfect. I know you all um, have begun another pastor search. And that might feel exciting and also like, oh, Lord, okay, yep, 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 here we are, here we are again, yeah, waiting. Over in Bronzeville, we uh, last week signed the contract on a building we're hoping to purchase. Hey, glory to God. So we have entered a 120-day waiting period <laughs> where we will see what the Lord has for us. 120 days of inspections, 120 days of capital campaign, all of the wonderful fun stuff that comes along with that. We are waiting. We have a lot of practice waiting. And yet we struggle. So this morning, we're going to spend some time um, looking at our cousins, walking with our cousins, the Israelites, and we are going to see what they have for us. Uh, the story we're going to look at this morning comes from the book of Exodus. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 32. Exodus is the second book in your Bible right after Genesis. Um, so we'll be in chapter 32, verses 1 to 5, um, and I'll give you time to get there. And when you do, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. It's not going to come on the screen, so you're going to have to listen and follow in your heart Bibles. Look at that. <laughs> so beginning with verse 1, it reads, when the, when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, take off the gold earrings that, you, that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they had handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. Ooh, Jesus. This is the word of God. Amen. So often when we um, approach the stories related to the Israelites wandering in the desert, um, we treat them as cautionary tales, as stories of what not to do. Now this is for good reason. <laughs> they definitely made some very questionable life choices during that period of time, and today's story is certainly a good example of that. But I believe that a, a more helpful way of viewing these stories, rather than seeing them as cautionary tales, these stories are most useful when we view them as mirrors. 
See, as a cautionary tale, this story makes it really easy to see the foolishness of idolatry. We look at the way the Israelites behave, and it is abundantly clear that this is not just wrong, but absolutely ridiculous. And by the way, that is on purpose. It is written in a way as to highlight the just complete folly of their actions. This is a great cautionary tale, but as a mirror, this story is even more powerful. Because as a mirror, it doesn't just teach us the folly of idolatry, it helps us to see the golden calves in our own lives and identify the lie that makes us want to build golden calves in the first place. And so this morning, as we make our way through these verses, I invite you to prop it up and look in it as a mirror. Are you ready? All right. <laughs> so there are a few things that we need to uh, understand before we can um, fully appreciate what this story has for us. The first thing um, has to do with the timing of this story. So the children of Israel arrived in the desert of Sinai three months into their wandering in the desert. So this means that when this incident happened, they were literally just three months out of being in bondage in Egypt. The second important thing to see is the placement of this story in the book of Exodus. Now, if you have ever read through the book of Exodus, when you got to chapter 32, you, if you're like me, took a little sigh of relief. Because chapter 32, what comes before that are a lot of very detailed, very, 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 very detailed instructions for how to build the tabernacle. The tabernacle was um, this sort of movable, Transmutable, no, transportable, that's the word I want. Transportable sanctuary where, God, uh, where God's presence was going to be. It was the way for the, the people to sort of literally carry God with them as they moved around before he brought them to the promised land and before there was a temple. And so you get a lot, a lot of detail about how to build it, like the size and the width of the walls, um, the materials, and, and how to build every single thing that's inside of the tabernacle. And then, preceding this verse, right, so if, if you, like me, are following your little one-year plan in, in your, in your one-year Bible, your reprieve is short-lived because right after this, <laughs> you get a lot of very, 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 very detailed instructions about how the people built the thing. Here's some instructions. We get this story, <laughs> and then, and they did it. I told them to do it, and then they did it. That's, that's how that reads. So hold that in your mind. That's the placement of this, of this story. And then the very, the last thing that you should hold in your mind has to do with why a calf. So that has always felt so very strange to me. <laughs> like of all the things they could be, if I'm going to make myself an idol, a baby cow, like they didn't even go for an adult cow. Like why a calf? <laughs> But the calf was not random. In, in many Near East religions, um, calves and bulls, these were common items that people would, or common um, symbols that people would use for idols. And specifically, the calf and the bull represented um, sort of pedestals 
where the gods of whatever the religion were, was that people were, were worshiping, where those gods were said to either stand on or sit on. Okay, so hold all that information in your mind, and now let's take a closer look at this story. I'm going to read verse 1 for you again. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. <laughs> that verse, as for this fellow Moses, it's literally kind of like, that dude, nah, we're done. We're done. <laughs> like, so I love, I, just, I love the way these stories are written in the Bible. So these verses, it's a lot happening in this one verse, a whole lot that's happening in this one verse. When we read it, it's easy to kind of imagine you know, sort of this organized group of people who maybe have, you know, they're clearly upset, but maybe they got together and they made a plan. They said, we, 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 got, we have some ideas about how to move forward. And so now they're, they're bringing their, their demands, right, to Aaron. They're saying, this is what we want you to do. But that's not what's happening. This is a mob. <laughs> this is an angry mob who is coming to Aaron frantic, and saying, you get up now. I like the way the King James Version writes it, because it, it says, they came to Aaron and say, up, make us gods. That's the tone of what's happening here, which gives Aaron a little bit of wiggle room for why he didn't, like, have any questions, like, no objections, no, like, maybe that we should breathe and calm down. They are angry. They are angry. Moses has gone up to the mountain, in their estimation, it's taken him entirely too long to get back, and they are freaking out. Now, at first read, it may seem like that is a gross overreaction. I mean, yes, Moses was on top of a mountain, the text tells us, for 40 days and 40 nights. We see that earlier um, in the book of Exodus. So, yes, that's a long time, but it doesn't seem like that should drive you to idol worship. Right? But there's more to this story. And here's a side note. When you are reading your Bibles, when you come across, like, human behavior that just don't seem to make sense, take that as a sign that you should dig a little deeper. I am absolutely of the mind that, like, the people back then are not that different than we are today. Yes, it was different historical moments. It was a different culture. But, like, just in terms of the way people respond, Right? Like, if you see people doing stuff that just doesn't quite make sense, dig, dig a little deeper. Dig a little deeper. I said at the start of this sermon that one of the strengths of this story is that it helps us to see the lie at the heart of why it's hard for us to wait. The lie at the heart of our struggle in waiting. That lie is that God is absent. That God has left us. And see, that lie is a powerful lie. It fuels our desire to take things into our own hands. It tempts us to reduce our faith to nothing more than a get-out-of-hell-free card so that we don't feel like we need God. Because after all, if I need God in my day-to-day -day life, if I need God, then I got to wait. But if I don't need God, then I don't have to wait anymore. That lie, that God is absent, that God had forgotten them, that God was gone, that lie 
is at the heart of what's happening in this story. And we see it in those very first words, when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming. See, Moses was more than just their leader. He was the intermediary between them and God. In Exodus chapter 20, um, we see the story of um, the people getting the Ten Commandments for the first time. And they have an encounter with God in that chapter that freaks them out. It terrifies them. And so in that chapter, they beg Moses to be their intermediary. In verse 19, they cry out to Moses and they say, speak to us yourself and we will listen. But do not have God speak to us or we will die. Often when we, when we read about the children of Israel or anybody in the Old Testament, and we read about these like miraculous ways that they were interacting with God, right? Like Moses sees a burning bush and angels are coming to people. Like we see all this stuff and we foolishly say to ourselves, if we had seen God like that, right? If we had been able to interact with God like that, we wouldn't have behaved that way. So I want to push against that and say the mental fortitude that these people showed, the emotional strength that they showed is actually quite impressive. Many of us would have just lost our minds. Think about what happened. If we really, really take this stuff seriously, these people had been slaves. They watched seven plagues happen before their eyes. Crazy stuff going on, right? They walked on dry land through water. There had been food falling from the sky every day that they were going out to eat. The stuff that was happening to them is the kind of stuff that would shake your understanding of how reality works, right? They then get Ten Commandments, and in the midst of that, they hear thunder. They see lightning. Like, there's all this stuff. They were terrified. And they cry out and they say, hey, Moses, please, I, look, <laughs> I'm glad we're not slaves. I think, I'm glad, I feel like maybe this might be an okay place where we're going, but could you please talk to God? I don't want to. I'm terrified. We will die. That was the posture that they had. They were panicked. And now Moses is gone. They're intermediary. The person who was not just their leader. And don't, don't make light of that. They were only three months out of slavery. Only three months on their road to healing from generations of being in bondage. It's not hard to understand why having a good, strong, stable leader was important. And now that leader, but not just the leader, their literal representation of God, the one who stood before them and was the only way that they knew what God was saying to them, what God wanted them to do, right? This people who were very keenly aware of their dependence on God, felt like they were now in a wilderness all by themselves without God. That, that lie that your God has forsaken you, that lie is what made them want to build a golden calf. That lie is why you and I behave the same way. See, the placement of this story, right after the instructions that God gave them for how to build a tabernacle, 
And right before the carrying out of those instructions, that placement is instructive. I am convinced that waiting is not actually the problem. We don't struggle with waiting. We struggle with the sense that we get in the middle and that in-between time that God is not with us, that God is not moving. See, waiting implies that God has said something you should be waiting for, that there's been a promise that was given, that God has moved in some way that has made you feel like there's something coming. Waiting implies that you have heard from the Lord, that you've been moving and walking with the Lord. And so what happens in that in-between time, in that space between when God said it and when God does it, is that we sit there and we feel like, oh my gosh, there's a silence. And in that silence, the enemy tells us that your God has abandoned you. There's a stillness, and that stillness doesn't feel like rest. It feels like the absence of God moving. And so you and I freak out. And we start building calves. <laughs> the lie that the enemy whispers to you and to I is that we are alone. That God has forgotten us. That's why they formed a mob. And as we look in the mirror of these verses, maybe we won't see ourselves begging our leaders to build an idol. I hope, I hope, I hope not. Um, but we tend to be a little more sophisticated than that, right? <laughs> but in our lives, this takes a form of us doing everything we can to fill any silence that might exist so that we don't have to sit with that discomfort of waiting. Or... It looks like us spinning our wheels, relying on our own gifts, talents, resources, networks, connections, anything, so that we can essentially say to God, thanks, I'll take it from here. Because if I don't need God, I don't have to wait. And so this brings us to the next verses, verses 1 to 5. And there are two things that I want to highlight here. The first is what they built. And the second is what they used to build it. So as I mentioned at the start, far from being a random, just like they were freaking out and was like, okay, a calf, right? It wasn't just a random decision. The calf tells us something really important about where their minds were. Remember again, um, what comes before. By the time this moment happens, they have received the instructions about the tabernacle. And they have received the instructions, more importantly, about how to build the Ark of the Covenant and what the Ark of the Covenant is. And so for those of you who might not have gotten there yet in your Bibles, the Ark of the Covenant was um, essentially the heart of the tabernacle. If the tabernacle was the moving sanctuary, the Ark of the Covenant literally represented the place where God was going to be. It was um, like a, a little chest, and inside the chest it had like a copy of the Ten Commandments and a copy of, I think it was Aaron's staff, and there were two cherubim, which I don't know what a cherubim is, um, but like there were two of them. And, and if it read Exodus, it describes in great detail how to build them. Uh, but there were these two carved cherubim, and the idea was that God would speak to Moses from between the cherubim. 
Have you made the connection yet? All right, let me, let me keep on. Okay, okay. So the calf in Near Eastern religions, religions that the people would have been very familiar with, the calf represented a pedestal on which the gods of that religion would stand or sit above the people. The Ark of the Covenant, which the people had already received instructions about how to build, that was the place in the tabernacle where God's presence was going to be. Do you see the connection now? Okay, let me, um, see, you got it, but everybody ain't there yet. Let me make it plain. Okay, so the golden calf was most likely the loudest, thanks God, I'll take it from here, that has ever been spoken in history. This is why the people in verse 4, when they say about that golden calf, this is your God that has brought you out of Egypt, it's not that they have all of a sudden decided to worship a different God. It's not that they have forgotten what God brought them out of Egypt. They have literally decided to try to reduce God to something they could control. Okay, well you, you're going to give us our ark that we're going to make it this way and that's where you're going to reside. Well, now you're gone. We're going to make for ourselves an idol and that's where you will reside. The people had decided that what they would do is they were going to make God into something they wanted him to be so that God would do what they wanted him to do. That's what's at the heart of idol worship. When we worship an idol, it is not that we are worshiping a different God. That would be a violation of the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. No, see, when we worship an idol, what we are doing is trying to reduce the creator of heaven and earth into something that we can hold and manage and control, something that will bend to our will and our way. The people were terrified of a God so terrified of this God that they had begged Moses to be their intermediary. They were so terrified when they thought that God was gone that they formed a mob. And their solution to never feel like that again was to try to contain God in something that they could control, something that would move and have its being according to their will. And rather than stand in judgment of them today, my invitation to us is to look in the mirror. What does this look like in your life? What have you tried to fashion God into because in your waiting you have believed the lie that God's silence is a sign of God's absence? Let me tell you a very practical way to answer that question. What do you rely on most when you are anxious? What makes you feel the most secure when you are shaken to your core and you feel unstable? I bet for all of us in this room, we want desperately to say, the Lord. But I bet that for many, many in this room, it's our careers our education, our savings accounts, 
our incomes, our networks, our relationships, our abilities to think and reason and problem solve. It's all manner of things that we try to fashion into a God that we can hold and feel close to and that will move the way we want him to move and do what we want him to do because we feel, we believe that the lie is true, that we have been abandoned. See, what makes this lie even more insidious is that often when we're in that space in between, when we're wrestling, when we're struggling, the very things that we use to construct our idols are the things, the resources, the gifts, the talents, the blessings that God has given us for his purpose. The reason the Israelites had gold in the first place to even fashion their little idol was because God had brought them out of Egypt with some reparations. If you go back and read the story, as the people are leaving Egypt, God had moved on the hearts of the Egyptians to send them out with gold. They left with resources. And they took those resources, the very resources that God had desired for them to use in the service of building the tabernacle, and they fashioned for themselves an idol. And before we stand in judgment of them on this morning, I invite us to look in the mirror. The way this looks in our lives is often failing to see that the very gifts and talents God has given us come from God and instead using them to render God unnecessary in our lives. I don't have to depend on God for my provision because my bank account is good. If I don't need God, I don't have to wait for God. We are all constantly in a season of waiting. We are feeling that waiting. New community Logan Square, new community Bronzeville. I know we're not here, but we feel that thing right now because we are all very, very tangibly in seasons of waiting, waiting for real things, waiting for big things. We are all standing in the middle always at all times of God's promise and the fulfillment of that promise. That is our posture in life. And what I want to tell you this morning is that it is absolutely a lie that we have have been abandoned or forsaken, that our God is absent in some way in the waiting. Let me tell you right now, God's silence never means God's absence because God is never absent. God's silence never means that God is absent. God is always with us, period. And here is the even better news, at least for those of us who struggle, for those of us who find ourselves tempted to believe a lie, to pick up our gifts, to pick up our talents, to pick up our resources and fashion them into an idol that we can worship, here is the amazing news. And this is what I want to leave you with this morning. It's not just that God is with us in the waiting. It's not just that, you know, we can believe that God is going to do all that he said he was going to do. Absolutely. The waiting is not just this, this thing we have to endure until we get to the thing God really wants for us. The waiting is the point. 
God is in the midst of our waiting because it's in the waiting that God is forming us into the image of his son. It's in the waiting that we are learning more about who he is and who we are in him. It's in the waiting that we do this thing, that we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. It's in the waiting that we become the people of God. The waiting is not just this thing we have to endure. It's not this thing we have to beat ourselves up about when we don't do it well. The waiting is where God is teaching us. And so, if you have been someone who looked in the mirror today and you did not like what you see, I promise you when I was writing this sermon, I was like, that's, ooh, the mirror. No, all right, Jesus. Right? If you looked in the mirror today and you were not happy with what you see, the good news is that's okay. Because the mirror happens in the waiting. <laughs> God gives us a word in the waiting. The Holy Spirit is always bringing loving conviction in the waiting. The waiting is the point. We will spend the rest of our lives waiting. Unless Jesus comes back while we're still living. And then, you know, <laughs> Jesus like him to come back. But that's not the point of this sermon. The waiting is the point. The waiting is the point. Just like the Israelites, we are people who are constantly on a journey. God is constantly, because he loves us, bringing us out of one thing and bringing us into something else, only to bring us out of that and bring us into another place. God is always walking alongside us in the journey, and we get to learn how to see God and know God and trust God in the waiting, in the silence, in the stillness. And that is good news. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. So here's what I, I want to encourage you all with this morning. As you all are entering this season of searching for a pastor, as you all are sitting in a season that might feel like one of many, right? Many seasons of waiting, many seasons of trying to figure out what God is doing, what God is saying, how God is moving in this place in very specific ways. I want to encourage you all to be gentle with each other to be gracious with yourselves and with each other. I wanna encourage you to regularly look in the mirror and to invite the Holy Spirit to show you those things that need to be uprooted because it's always for our good. We get to wait. We get to wait with God, for God. We get to wait with each other. Not only has God not left us, he makes it clear that he has not left us every day because you get to sit next to people who love the Lord just like you. And so I want to encourage you all to hold this process with care, to hold each other with care, to be honest about where you are, to be honest when you are tempted to pick up something and make a little idol, to be quick to repent to be quick to love. Let me pray for us. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. God, you are so kind. Your heart is kind. 
I thank you that you see us and you love us. You see our anxiety. You see our fearfulness. You see all of the ways that we just spend ourselves. And your heart breaks for us. I thank you that you never look on us with condemnation, but that you are always calling out, that you are always reaching out, that you are always beckoning us to look up and see you. We confess, oh God, that in the waiting we have often believed the lie. We have often lived as though you are not our God, as though somehow we have been forsaken, even though you promised never to do that. God, we confess it and we repent. We ask, Lord, that once again you would turn us around, that you would dust us off, that you would teach us how to walk with you, how to sit with you, how to know that you are near, even when we don't feel it. I thank you for the way you hold us, God. I thank you for the way you keep us. I thank you for the community, for the, for the cloud of witness that came before us. I thank you for the fact that we can learn from these stories that you have left us. I thank you that we can learn from the ways you have moved in our own lives, from our own testimonies. I thank you, God, that in this life, we can be certain that in all things you are working at all times for our good that we don't have to be afraid, and even when we are, your perfect love will cast out that fear. So help us to see you clearly, God. Help us to trust you more. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. <laughs>